Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs open their minds to new ideas and concepts that will help you during your entrepreneurial journey and during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 75. I'm your host, Gustavo Dantas, and today we have John Will. John is a black belt from Higan Machado and Australia's first jiu-jitsu black belt. He has been an instructor to various law enforcement and military organizations throughout the world and consults and delivers instructor training for more than 100 schools worldwide. He talked about some of the lessons that he learned from jiu-jitsu. He shared about the importance of knowing what you want and especially what you don't want. And my takeaway from the interview came when he said, let your passion monetize you, which inspired me to title the episode the same phrase. Stick around for my final thoughts after the interview when I expand on this topic. Stay tuned right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message. Oos. The BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, formerly Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free jiu-jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donate all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.jujitsutribe.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, John Will. John is a black belt under Higan Machado. He is a lifelong martial artist who has earned several black belts in various disciplines, as well as being the first Australian to earn a black belt in jiu-jitsu. In 1987, he founded Australian Blitz Martial Arts Magazine. John also founded BJJ Australia, the largest single BJJ organization outside of Brazil. He has been an instructor to various law enforcement and military organizations throughout the world and consults and delivers instructor training for more than 100 schools worldwide. John is an author of the best-selling life coaching series, Rogue Black Belt. John, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks very much, Gustavo. Thank you for having me. I believe you're the first Australian to be interviewed on the podcast in 75 episodes. Well, I'm honored. Thank you very much. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. So tell us how martial arts get into your life and eventually jiu-jitsu. Uh, probably, probably a very familiar story for most. You know, um, My father was a policeman. And in Australia, policemen usually get, they used to get shifted around a lot. So I was always the new kid in school halfway through the year. So naturally, you know, as the new kid, the pecking order's already been established. So, you know, you get into some scraps and victim of bullying and stuff like that. So I, um, my father, you know, just taught me some basics. And then I, so I guess I, that's where my, my interest in self-defense started. Uh, and then I've kind of, I became more passionate about that um, throughout my high school. Uh, you know, and I, I trained in karate and taekwondo and I, I actually started in amateur in freestyle wrestling when I was 14. Um, 
which actually was weird because it always came back to the wrestling when it came to a fight. <laughs> the, mm. the, the, the kicking went out the window and it was double leg takedown, ground and pound. Um, but then uh, when I finished my schooling, um, the age is 18, I had a childhood hero called Don Drager. You may, have, may not have heard of him. He's an author. He was a best-selling author. He was in the US Marine Corps um, way back. And he was one of the first people, a real journeyman in martial arts, Don Drager. Some of the older guys will know who I'm talking about. And he traveled all over India, Indonesia, Thailand, back in the 60s, studying the various martial arts systems. He wrote some books. I read those books. And I thought, when I leave school, I'm going to follow in his footsteps. So I kind of did. I went over and trained in Southeast Asia for the up, probably up to about 1982. Indonesia, Thailand, India, wrestling in India, kickboxing in Thailand, karate in Japan, stuff like that. And then, uh, then I started a martial arts magazine as a way of just kind of like making enough money to get by. It wasn't like America where you got that population in Australia at that time, you know, it was only 20 million people. So I sold 10,000 copies of the magazine. But that was enough to give me like a very, very modest wage, something you'd earn at Costco or something. But that was cool. It had funded my martial arts journey. So uh, I, I started that magazine and it was the second issue of that magazine in about 1985. The second issue came out. A guy called Marcelo Beirin, who you probably have heard of, from Brazil, from Rio, he came out to Australia on a surfing holiday. While he was out here, he offered a $50,000 challenge to anyone who would take him up, which in those days, Gustavo, that was not done. Like with, this is pre UFC. Yeah. So it was a kind of a, a, a bit of a, a, an urban myth that there was underground fights for money, but apparently not in Rio, um, but, but <laughs> this was new for us. Uh, and, and so I, I heard wind of this. So I wrote a little article on it in the magazine, but no one took him up on the offer. And then his offer went from 50,000 to 40 to 30 to 10, still no takers. And I thought, that's weird. Who is this guy? And in chasing him up, I discovered Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I, I, I heard about it and it was in, um, my first uh, contact with it was in Horry and Gracie's garage in Torrance. Yeah. I went over to LA, trained at the Jet Center, some kickboxing, met Gene LaBelle, trained a bit. Of, and then I went out there and did five private lessons with Horry and Gracie. Um, for $500 US, might I add, in 1986, which was a lot of money. Yes. <laughs> this way, it was more money than I had <laughs> by $100. So some friends chipped in and gave me the extra $100 and I could afford the five lessons. Uh, but the fifth lesson uh, was conducted by his cousin, Egan Machado, who was really great, even though he couldn't speak a word of English. His passion came through and... We became friends and um, eventually I went back after six months and he said, don't train here, come to Brazil. And we went down to Brazil together to Baja Gracie and I didn't even know who I was hanging with. You know, it was Hegan Machado, all the Gracies, Hillion Gracie, Henzo was a purple belt. Um, but we were all in the mucking or messing around in Terrazopolis together. I didn't even know who I was with. I just thought, oh, they're pretty good at jiu-jitsu. Uh, I'll stay yeah. with these guys. You know, yeah, it turned out. Yeah, that's incredible. And... How do you feel jiu-jitsu relate to life? Now that with all your experience that you have in all different types of martial arts, more specifically, do you feel that I have a different look of jiu-jitsu relate to life? 
I, 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 well, because I'm so immer- I've been so immersed in jujitsu and martial arts my whole life, but you know, specifically jujitsu, which is, which is a very complex, you know, as we both know, it's, it has this complexity to it. It's got a simplicity and an efficacy that draws us in because it works and, and, and it's easy to get good enough very quickly that you can prevail in a fight, but it's the complexity of it that kept me there. So, um, but keeps us all there, right? The complexity. If it was simple like drafts or checkers, you know, we might not still be there, but that's the complexity of it. And so it's that that's got me drawn in. But lots of things that I can relate that I have learnt through jiu-jitsu and I can relate and I've used those exact same things off the mat in my life. Um, process, not goal. You know, the process, like just even the process of, like, you know, you're doing, you're doing a flower sweep. It's not a move, right? We both understand it. So this grip, that grip, get the angle, hit the, you know, so that it doesn't matter what it is. There's a, it's a step-by-step process. Um, so focusing on the process and not the goal was a very big um, lesson for me from jiu-jitsu. Um, seeking, gathering lots of small successes rather than looking for the big success. That was something I learned from jiu-jitsu because, you know, because we, we do get small successes in jiu-jitsu, you know, it's not like you get all these big successes, particularly at the beginning. It's, oh my goodness, I escaped from side control. You know, wow, that'll do me tonight. That's all I can do. But that's a small success. And I learned to, I learned to value small successes. Um, I think, uh, learn to, well, you know, there's no way around this. Um, you, you have to learn to embrace the suck. I mean, you know, it's not all, you know, it's not all you're winning. And, you're, you know, you, you, at, the, at the beginning, in the first few years, I only had a good night when I was the one in knee ride or when I was the one on the mount. Or but after a while, you realise if you're, if, you're, if you're only having a good time when it's all nice, you're condemning yourself to a lot of bad time. I want it to be a good time. I want to live in a state of joy all the time. So I learnt to like being in bad positions in jiu-jitsu and then i realized it's the same in life when thing gets things get tough things get hard hey enjoy it still right don't just wait for the nice bits because you're condemning yourself to such a um a thin slice of life no enjoy the whole thing uh, embrace the suck so that was something that i learned from um um jiu-jitsu knowing that um you know, I think in life it's important to, okay, it's important to know what you want, but it's equally important to know what you don't want. Yes. And I think that's something I got from jiu-jitsu. You know, I, I, I knew what I wanted, but later on, as, as I became better and better at jiu-jitsu or more competent at jiu-jitsu, I realized there, there are certain things you don't want. You know, so in the avoidance of what you don't want, that's, that's something that I, you know, got in jiu-jitsu, which would have taken me a lot longer to learn that in life. Um, you know, um, and moving away from the ordinary, you know, we, we start out as a white belts and we're ordinary, um, you know, but then by the time you go through the different ranks, you, you're moving away from the ordinary, you know, and you see yourself doing that, right. And, and then you get a black belt and you're, you're no longer that white belt. You've moved away and you've le- and also you've left 90% of the population in your wake, you know, like irrespective you all started together everyone was there but plenty of people dropped off so you yeah. you're left there the only one 
you know, with, with, with no, 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 certainly in my own case, I had no, I had no particular athletic prowess or anything like that. It was just, I was just, I was into it and I embraced the suck and I was able to get through those times where it was tough and, and continue. And then one day you wake up and you are no longer part of the ordinary. And again, I think in life away from the mat, you should want that because you just have to look around and say, well, what's the alternative? Like, do you, do you want to be part of this ordinary thing that I'm looking at? You know, a life of bad debt, financially struggling, bad health, eating bad food, marriage that doesn't last. Do I want that? No, I don't. So I want to leave that in my wake as well. So I think all those things and plenty more I've, I've learned from jiu-jitsu. So was the magazine your first entrepreneurial journey? No. Like the first, yes. you know, like the beginning of it, the beginning of the journey? 100% it was. Yes. Yes. And how was the mindset starting that? Looking back. Oh, okay. Look, I'll, I'll tell you, but you won't like me for <laughs> it. Um, it's nothing to brag about, Gustavo, but, you know, we grow and move on, right? So yeah, I'm not absolutely. the same person as I want there. Uh, but when I was there, I, I, there was an Australian magazine in place called Australasian Fighting Arts. I wrote an article about Brazilian jiu-jitsu back then, 1984 or something. They published it. But two or three of the friends of the editor jumped on and just bashed me after publishing that because I was talking about the importance of cross-training. You know, like I was a stand-up fighter, but I wanted, to, I wanted to fix this giant hole that I had, which was evident when you went to the ground. Um, so I wanted to at least, you know, it started like that. I wanted to make this hole go away, this void go away and learn some groundwork. And they, they canned me. They said, you know, you can't cross train. You can't do one thing and another thing and another thing. You've got to pick something and stick on. And they really did give me a hard time. So I wrote back a reply. They didn't publish my reply. They refused to publish my reply. I became incensed at that. I overreacted a little bit perhaps I went down to a local printer and said, how much to public print a magazine like that? They said $10,000. I went home and said, if I can sell $10,000 worth of ads, I've covered the magazine. If I sell one magazine, I'm in profit, but I get to say what I want. So I got in my car, my beat up car, drove around to all the martial arts schools and shops I could find both in my own state and the state next door. And I literally sold $10,000 worth of ads in a magazine that didn't exist yet. I said, if the magazine comes out, if I publish your ad, will you pay me? Here's the invoice. They said, sure. I got $10,000 worth of ads. I went back. I borrowed the money. I did the magazine. I got paid. Plus, I sold 10,000 copies of magazines and got a dollar profit per magazine. Made $10,000, but more importantly, I got to say what I wanted. Yes. It took me 10 issues to put the other magazine out of business, <laughs> which was my goal. Yeah. So it sounds bad, but that's actually was my mindset. I wanted to destroy the other magazine that did not let me have my say. As soon as that happened, I lost interest in the magazine and I sold it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there, I had an episode here, number five with uh, Pete Roberts. He's the, uh, the, co-owner of origin geese 
And uh, I titled the podcast a quote that I learned. I was in a mastermind group and one of the speakers, his name is Ian Percy, and he wrote this book, The Profitable Power of Purpose. Matter of fact, this book helped me out a lot. And I learned something that was kind of like seven, uh, what is it? A seven requirements or seven steps or something. And in one of them, he talks about let your irritations inspire you. And that's oh, what you did. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got annoyed <laughs> yeah. and did something about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Good. Thank you for that. It, <laughs> for it is. Me. I don't, I definitely don't look into the negative. And like you said, that was the state of mind that you were back then, you know, and it is what it yeah. is. But uh, um, the, the reason why I've been a, a promoter, uh, tournament promoter for 20 years. And I have mentioned this in a podcast before. When I moved to Arizona in 2000, I lived in Vegas um, and moved there in 1999. I, I taught at uh, John Lewis School and in Vegas and good friend of mine. But when I moved to Arizona, there's only one guy promoting tournaments. And the tournament was awful, was disrespectful to competitors, to spectators, to coaches. I mean, it was a mess. And... I went in the first time and I was like, dude, this is embarrassing. And I was already had promoted in Brazil. And three months oh. later, the same thing. I was like, okay, that's a pattern here. This is not going to change. No one's going to do anything about it. Okay, I will. And then that's what I did. I, that I let nice. that basically that irritation uh, inspire me. And basically, maybe they didn't took you. It didn't take me ten tournaments, but maybe it took me ten years to get him out of out of business. So eventually, oh. he, he was trying to do. Man, I'll do tournaments. He'll put it in the same day. You know what I mean? All those like stupid little things, and I'm and people like, dude, that guy. I'm like, well, we'll see in the long term who's gonna get the best of it. You know? And well, I'm still around. I'm still. I uh, still have a, a competition twenty years later, and. But there's nothing wrong. Don't feel bad. That was the uh, <laughs> the uh, the path that you know you had to go through to be where you're at today. You know the learning. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nice. Let your irritation fuel you. I like yeah. it. Thank you for that. <laughs> so what after that? What was your next entrepreneurial venture? Well, I not so much entrepreneurial, but but I but I I did start my academy. Mm -hmm. Back in about uh, well, 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 I had an academy in 1982. It wasn't a BJJ mm -hmm. academy because um, I didn't start BJJ until 1986. Um, but I had an academy, you know, small little thing in a basement, uh, you know, with 40 students. That's all. But when I got my black belt in BJJ in 1997, that's when I. Um, you know, I started to uh, kind of think a little bit more about how to run a school more effectively and that sort of thing. So I guess that was, that's always been there. Um, yeah, but in terms of entrepreneurialism, well, 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 you know, then it was things like writing books, yes. writing books and doing DVDs and making curriculums, yeah. right? I guess that's... I mean, all that stuff you do from coaching to speaking engagements to seminars, it's all part of uh, yeah. being the hustler. You know, you just make it happen and just doing different things. And that's the life of the, especially the martial arts entrepreneur. I mean, that's what you do. 
Yeah, I was doing that, you know, teaching. I started teaching seminars. And now, and for, for, I don't know, 15, for more, 20 years, I've been doing more than 100 seminars a year. Wow, yeah. Um, so I do a lot, I, but I pack it in. You know, if I go, like last weekend, I was on the other side of the country from where I live. You know, it's a four-hour flight, to, like as wide as America, the States. Um, but when I fly over there, I, I fly on a Friday night. I'll do one on a Friday night, three on a Saturday, two on a Sunday, and fly back. You know, I'm going to pack it in. I'm not going to fly to the other side of to another state for one seminar. So, so I, I, I've always done that. Um, I've always packed it in. Um, so I, yeah, I do more than a hundred. I think I did 120 last year. Wow. Seminars. So I, I guess that's entrepreneurial. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They're especially in martial arts. Yeah. Mm, mm. And it, you gotta, gotta make it happen. And, and property, you know, I've, cause I don't, I, I, in terms of making a living, I've never been interested in making money. Um, that's put, put it this way. I've never been, I, I shouldn't say that. I, I've, that's never been my focus. Making money is a, a byproduct of what I do. Um, so I, 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 I'm very interested in what I do. I'm passionate about what I do. And a byproduct of that is that you get paid. Um, and so, but, but when you, it's not only that you get paid, I don't think, I think that's okay to get paid, but I think it's what you do with that money counts for as much as how much money you make. So, you know, you might, someone might be working in, 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 in what's it called over there? Big burger or something. I don't know. Fat boy. I don't know what it is. Um, Denny's. Mm -hmm. um, and they might be just making their 20, $30,000 a year. But if they can learn to, um, you know, live frugally, you know, I, I, my first house I bought, I lived in the laundry. I, I lived in the laundry on a mattress that I put away every day. I rented out the three rooms just to be able to afford the house. But then the house doubled in price. I sold it and then leveraged up, you know, and bought more properties later on. But I think that it's not so much how much money you earn. It's what you do with that money. That's really important. Um, and you don't have to earn a lot of money to make a lot of money. I think you, it's what you do with the money. Um, that's something that I learned. Mm -hmm. And what did you say is some of the toughest entrepreneurial experiences that you had in your life and what did you learn from it? When you look back, what's some of the things that are some tough lessons? I haven't had many bad lessons because I'm not, I'm not like, you know, we talk, people talk about risk taking, taking risks and all of that stuff. I think that's something that's um, viable to a degree. But if our ancestors took big risks, none of us would be here. Um, you know, I think that our ancestors, um, provided that you believe in evolution, so mm -hmm. don't play this in Utah. Um, but if you believe that we've evolved and we've been around a long time, that, that if people were walking down to the beach, picking up a blue ringed octopus and saying, well, I'll take a risk, I'll eat this, then they wouldn't have lived long enough to procreate and have children and you wouldn't be here. So I think that most of our ancestors were risk adverse. Um, now, I think in today's society, you and I, we can go to the supermarket with a fair degree of certainty and try a new food. So we're more able to take risks now than our ancestors were able to take. So this is a beautiful benefit that we have living the way we do it, you know, in heaven, apparently, you know. So, but, but I think taking big risks can really mess people up. It can put an end to their entrepreneurial journey. Mm -hmm. So I believe in taking very small risks, 
getting little successes and then building on that, not big risks. But I took a big risk once. Um, and that is one of my first forays into the property market. So I, you, you've probably heard of this over there. You, you guys invented it, no doubt. So you buy an apartment off the plan, <laughs> you know, and you come up with a deposit bond, meaning 1% of the price of the apartment. But here's the, and I did that. And the idea, of course, is that you put down a 1% deposit because the apartments won't be finished for, 10, for three or four years. But in three or four years, all being well, they'll be worth much more than the price point of today. So at that time, when they're worth all that money, the bank's going to give you the 99%. But of course, when I did it, the prop, when you're doing that and, and you're buying an apartment in a block of 200 other apartments and all the people who are doing it are doing it for the same reason mm -hmm. you have, when it comes to sell it, you're all trying to sell an identical product on the same day. Oh. <laughs> That's not a good plan because now the price is going to go south and it's not even worth the 400 that you'd originally planned on. It's now only worth 300. So the bank won't even lend you the money. Wow. And now you lose your deposit bond, you know, so all of that, that was the first, but I, I luckily at that time, I already had a second house. So instead of selling when everyone else sold, I was able to hold on and suck it up for three years. It was negatively geared. I put in the extra hundred dollars every week to, you know, to get my mortgage paid off. And in three years, it came back to the original price that I bought it for. And then I sold it and got out broke even, but that was three years of lost opportunity. Yeah. Right. And this and that. So that was my first lesson. Don't be, don't, don't be, don't be selling apples in an apple market where you're the one that doesn't know anything about apples, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you want to be, you want to be the guy selling mangoes in an apple market. <laughs> Got it. And yeah. uh, we're talking prior to the interview about uh, monetizing in your passion. And what do you like to share with entrepreneurs about this idea? Again, I think, particularly, well, I'm just going to speak from a martial arts landscape, okay. Gustavo, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a, a lot of martial artists. Um, I think that what, one of the big problems we have is there are a lot of people in the martial arts landscape that really haven't got any other skills to speak of. They've got no degree. They've got no, you know, experience in other, in job or work. So they wake up one day and go, how am I going to like it, make a living? They look at their instructor and say, well, he's making a living. Why don't I do the same? <laughs> and, and, but they have no skills. They have no even teaching skills, let alone, you know, they might be able to do jujitsu or taekwondo or kickboxing, but teaching as we know is a completely different skill set. So they don't have any of that. They just look at him and think his life looks pretty cool. He's working four nights a week. I'll do that but they have no skills. They have no backup plan. They have no degree. They have no planning. They don't read books. They don't do anything. So they go out there and do that. They try to monetize their passion. And then they wake up four years later and think, Oh my goodness, I hate going to class. I hate having to teach. I don't like this. I don't like that. So, and they, they struggle or fail. And I see a lot of that. So I think you people have to be careful about monetizing their passion because 
it, it, it's one thing to love doing fly fishing. It's another thing to say, I'm going to turn that into a money-making thing. I'm going to guide people fly fishing every day. That'll be awesome. I do this thing I love every day. Oh no, when you go out to that same stream, casting at that same trout, and you know the thing by name because you took people there every single day last month, suddenly you hate the thing that you love doing. So there's a real difference between, you know, being passionate about training and then teaching or passionate about fly fishing and then guiding. So people need to be careful about waking up one day thinking they'll monetize their passion. I think that our passion monetizes us so it's the fact that we've got passion inside us that drives us to pursue and question and embrace the suck and then be curious and become like obsessed with details that's all driven by our passion so it's the that that will monetize you but don't necessarily just point that at the thing that you're passionate about you can point it at something that you're not passionate about like property and spend a couple of months and learn and, and, and make much more money, <laughs> you know, and you're not losing the, your passion about the thing you love. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you, you take your, the lessons you've learned, but point it some, somewhere else, like property or stock market or, or a combination of both, ideally, right? And then make your money there and have multiple income streams, one of which might be, you know, you teaching. But if you don't want to teach, if I don't want to go to my academy, next week i don't have to go i'm independently wealthy i never have to earn work as long as i live but i'm gonna be there why because i want to be there yeah and that's the, that's a great reason to be there <laughs> right they shouldn't want me there if i'm walking in there going oh, i have to do the grind tonight because i've got to make pay my rent no i i became independently wealthy a few years ago by pointing my intelligence and pointing the thing using the skills i've learned on the mat and pointing them at the property market and then basically doing the same thing there that i did on the mat you know and then get some properties and then rent them out and then you pay them off and then you borrow you get another one and suddenly you know you you don't need anyone's money anymore i think that so i would say to summarize rather than monetizing our passion let our passion monetize us and that might make you look further afield from the thing that you're into uh, and use your, you know, your mind in, in other ways and de- develop diverse income streams. One dries up, you know, that's how rivers keep flowing, right? The bigger the catchment, the bigger the river. If it's just one catchment, like it's going to dry up, right? But if there's 15 streams pouring into it, two streams dry up, you're still good to go. Yeah, and financial dependence, I mean, people have different perceptions about the meaning of what financial independence means. Uh, for mm. me, it's, it's like similar to you in a way of living the lifestyle that you want to live without mm. having to work. You work because yeah. you want to. And, and again, living the <laughs> lifestyle that you want to live. Um, and then each one decide what that is. But um, of course, getting to that point a lot of grinding, a lot of work to get to the point of you having the luxury to the side. And one thing that I'm talking about passion, and you know, that's a common topic that we talk in, in a podcast and about, uh, you, you mentioned about letting the passion monetize us. When, when I decided this is, uh, what, 1990, by 1992, 
I think I was 91. I was already uh, more like 1991. I was already pretty determined, like, okay, uh, I want to do this. That's what I want to do. I wanted to become a teacher. I wanted to have my own school. And this is back in, in Brazil. And my mom was not very happy with me. I was 16. And I'm like saying, like, it's what I'm going to do for a living. So, of course, she is like, oh, yeah, yeah, jiu-jitsu is good. Martial arts is good. Keep them away from trouble, whatever. But you're not going to really make a living at this. I'm not going to make any money. And when it got time for me to go to college and I wanted to go to college, the something that could have helped me with martial arts, because in Brazil, since you've been there, you, you know that, especially nowadays, if you see, but even back then, there are not a lot of like uh, jujitsu academies. Uh, there's a lot of like, it's a gym, fitness gym, and they have a space where they run the program there, you know, and yeah. to have a, one of those gyms, uh, I need to have a, a physical education degree and stuff like that. So I thought, you know what, uh, if I want to have an academy, I think I want to go to college because I, uh, I can do that, get my physical education degree. I can have the academy, plus I can, you know, just do other things with that. I want something related to sports. And she was uh, not having it. I was doing uh, physical education. I was like, you're not going to make any money. I'm like, who's talking about money? You know, I'm not talking about yeah. money. And I'm just talking about do like I really want to do. And I figured that out. Uh, I was lucky that I fig- figured this out in my young teens that uh, my number one value, the freedom of choice. I said, I just don't want people telling me what to do. Dude. And that, that's all, you know, and that ended up somehow uh, paying off. <laughs> and so I totally understand. I like the idea you mentioned about um, letting the passion monetize us instead of monetize on, on your passion. I, I like that. It's very subtle change in the world, but in the words, but I like that because um, that's how sometimes people end up getting, uh, get involved as you mentioned in, into a business, but like for the wrong reasons, even though they, they maybe they kind of like what they doing and, and exactly what is said, it happens in jujitsu and martial arts, you see like, hey, you see the guy making, you know, making his living. I, I guess I can do that too. Sometimes works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, as, as I also said, I think it's really important to like, what are you doing with that money? Like, you know, you know, you know, um, richest man in Babel, mm-hmm. you read that book, the richest man in Babel, yep. you know, saving 10% of everything that you do. Um, that, that's a really important thing so and and the earlier you start doing that it it might just be that one private lesson you know it might be just that whatever and then after a while you save 20 percent, then 30 then now i save 100 percent because i don't need money well it's weird that because you live the lifestyle we live but I, i can't spend the money i couldn't spend the money that i have in three lifetimes because i what do i do i'm going to go to the mat and we're going to go on there and work our x guard you know like it's it's, it doesn't cost us anything right (laughs) maybe just travel business class travel Mm -hmm. (laughs) staying in nice places but um but i think that um planning ahead is a really important concept Mm -hmm. planning i mean you're a very organized person um and and i tend to be naturally quite organized and i think that organized people tend to do well, you know, like when they see opportunities, they tend to, you know, go for it, but in an organized, like your tournament, that right. Why is one of the reasons why your competition must have worked is because you're just a naturally, you're a, an organized person. And I, 
Um, you probably take notes with your early training and all of that stuff. Um, and I think that really helps to be, be very organized. Now, being organized speaks to forward planning. But that shouldn't be a foreign concept on the map. You know, if we're trying to pass a guard, our attention has to be on, on the guard. Otherwise, Gustavo's going to triangle me, mm -hmm. right? But, but some part of my brain, let's say 10%, <laughs> better be thinking about what's happening once we've got the pass. You know, right? So it, shouldn't, it can't all be about the now. Um, but, but also equally, it can't all be about what's going to happen when I'm passed because then you're triangling me. <laughs> so I, I think it's the same in life. Um, I think that mostly we, you and I, we're, we're enjoying this time that we're having right now. We're not thinking about next week. We're enjoying each other's company, having a cool discussion. So we're, we're all about here. But some little part of your brain's... Yeah. It, it has to be about prepping for what's going to happen later on today, you know, or whatever. And I, I think that's really important as well because there's, you know, Gustavo, they, there's so much talk the last few years about living in the now, Eckhart Tolle, you know, all of this stuff. But even Eckhart Tolle had to plan his book, yeah. you know, like, yeah, right? Um, he had to think ahead and plan his seminar yeah. tour to speak about living in the now. So come on. Uh, so not taking it away from him, but, some planning, right? And I think if, if people are thinking a little bit about the future, then they will start maybe not spending all the money mm -hmm. they make and putting aside 10 or 20% and pay their future self because their future self will probably turn up. <laughs> and when that guy turns up, we, we wanted to have been very generous with our gift to that future self, mm -hmm. right? Everyone, it's easy for us all to be very generous to ourselves now today. But I want to be generous to the version of me that is going to wake up five years from now. So I'm, I'm, I'm spending on that guy. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I've thought for a long time. And it's paid off really well. I spent a little bit of my brain, not much, just some little part. Mostly I've been about now and today and enjoying, right? But, but not... 10% or whatever number you want, whatever fake number you want to put, put on it. Yeah, I'm going to think about tomorrow. Yeah, you, you mentioned something um, about in jiu-jitsu, like you, you're saying like, yeah, I'm dealing with it now. I got to pass someone's guard. But you know, like in your brain and like, I know what the goal is. I need like when I get there, you know, what's going to be or whatnot. And I had an interview to uh, episode number six with uh, Bernardo Farias. He is... Uh, uh, IBJJF Hall of Fame, um, five-time world champion, I believe. And I was having a discussion with him in a different time. And just I was actually asking him a, a few things about when competition mindset and so forth. And, and I had like a similar view, but he used other terminology that I like. And, and he said, I don't try to win the match. He said, I try to win the positions. If I win positions, and then I can win the match. So he said, when I'm, I'm on the bottom, I'm not thinking about anything else or either I'm getting submission or reversal. I need to get out of here. And this, and after, let's say, I, I sweep someone. Now I'm on the top. Okay, now I'm dealing with a different scenario, and then I got to beat another position. So if I keep beating 
the next the the next position and then I win the match and that and I share this with my students because as you you mentioned right at the beginning uh, and two and and we're talking about focusing on the process and not on the go and that helps you sometimes. That's how we have some mental blocks in competition. You're thinking so much, am I going to win? Am I going to lose? Am I going to be judged? You know, people expect me to win. And you forget about the now that what needs to be done that's going to help you to get the outcome that you want. So it's a cool, simple concept uh, that sometimes uh, uh, the competitors can end up getting caught into, am I going to win? I'm going to lose. And uh, forget about that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I- I've long since railed, I've I've pushed back a fair bit about this whole idea of like goals. And and let me qualify that. Like, because if you, if I think if we focus on the goal and we keep our attention on the goal, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Um, right. So, so you can look at the goal, like, you know, that's ridiculous book. I mean, the secret, mm-hmm. you know, think about it and the, the universe will <laughs> manifest it. Oh my, my God. I mean, what a lot of nonsense. I mean, you can put a picture of a Ferrari on the wall and look at it every day and go Ferrari, Ferrari. But the only thing that's going to manifest is a bunch of spiders living behind it. The, you know, the, 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 I think it's nice to have a goal, but that's why I like to make a distinction. I say fuzzy goal, fuzzy, you know, fuzzy. So it's a fuzzy goal. I know roughly what I want, but now I put my attention on where I am and the step that's going to happen now. And then, right. And the thing about a fuzzy goal is that you can't focus your attention on it. It makes you focus your attention on now. Plus the fuzzy goal allows us to be flexible because you might say, I've got that goal, but, I'm sure this has happened to you on your way there, a better goal appears off to the right or to the left. So you're not locked in, you know, you're not locked into that. So I like the, I like to call it fuzzy goals, not goals Mm -hmm. for for that reason. It allows us to have more adaptability, flexibility on the way, but more important, it keeps our attention on the step we're doing right now, which is where our attention should be for living our life in a joyful way. Yeah. Like my, I'm, I'm enjoying the conversation with you now. I'm, I'm enjoying the moment with you and that's where I would want all my attention to be so I can get the maximum enjoyment out of it. I don't want to be focused on the goal, which is like get this interview done. Yeah. Why, why, why would I want that? You know, that's crazy. Yeah. And this is a, uh, the concept that I talk with, especially with the athletes. I did mental coaching for athletes for a long time and something that I really enjoyed. And then at the same time, I started to uh, adapt this to entrepreneurship as well and having three types of goal the outcome goal the process goal and the performance goal and the outcome goal is that you don't focus on that it's like you put in a little box and you put in a shelf and say like what do i have to do in order to get the little box that is right there so that's why exactly what it said you don't focus on if you focus on oh my god yeah i need to get it's not going to do any good and, and then you focus on the process and the performance, the process of the every day, what are the tasks that need to be done? Even Eckhart uh, told me that, you know, I, I read plenty of his books and about focusing on the now, but he mentions too, and he actually, I've seen interviews too, and he's talking, it's not that I, I don't want you to think about the future. No, you can schedule a time for you to think about, to plan about your future, what you're going to do. It's not just like, I'm now in the, I don't want to, I don't care what is in the future. Like, no, but you're present. 
you can schedule a time to be present to think about what you're going to be doing in years from now or not. So I started to, this helped me too as a competitor to, to make sure that, okay, this is my process goal. This is what I need to do every day, my training, my sleep, my, my nutrition or whatever, and the performance goal as far as jujitsu talking on competition, what are the moves that I'm really trying to hit in competition if I do have a chance, if I land in this position and that. And of course, when you focus on the performance goal, kind of like the outcome definitely takes a back seat, you know, because you're more focused on the now, the performance of what you're trying to achieve. And me as a, a especially being older, I mean, I don't compete anymore. I'm 45 right now, but uh, the last few times I competed in the past few years, that was my main focus was the performance goal. Cause I said, man, um, winning this medal here is not going to do anything in my life at all. But I wanted the fulfillment of, I, I set this to try this move that I never tried. I was able to get it for me. Um, I'm saying Gustavo at 45 saying like, this is more, I get more fulfillment of that knowing that I went through the process. I, I practice a lot of the things that I want to use and I used than the, in the metal. Can I have this conversation, the same conversation 20 years ago? Absolutely not. 20 years ago is 100% focus and outcome metal, go to metal. That's all that matters. And as you get older, you start seeing things in a different way. And for me, well, some of us. Yeah, yeah, true. I'm glad that you're one of them. <laughs> true. And I, I don't know if I will compete again. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if I do. But if I do, it's going to be the same thing of like choosing. I try, I do my best to share this with my students. A lot of my students who are listening right now probably listen to my spiel talking about this, the outcome, the process, and the performance. And this is one of them. I try to get even kids to get performance goals. What is a move that you've been doing really well at the school, but you've never used in a competition? Maybe you didn't use because you didn't have opportunity or maybe because you were afraid of making a mistake. You know, they're, they're like, oh, if I try this, it's not going to work. And if it works, it's going to pass. And if it passes, I'm going to lose. I don't want to lose. I don't want to be judged. So that's a whole the subconsciously all that the negative talk is happening. But since the beginning, I try to suggest people to get them to go out of their comfort zone, feel that uh, the little bit of anxiety of like, hey, do you do this well at the school? Oh, yeah, I get it all the time. So try to use that. That should be part of your performance goal. And when they do, the fulfillment is like, dude, that's really cool. I faced my fear. You know, I didn't want to pull guard. I really want to try takedown. And I got the first time I land a takedown. That, you know, do something for sure for their confidence. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And transferring that same concept to life. You know, going out of your comfort zone and having your performance goals in life. Yeah, well said. Nice, nice, nicely put. What did you say? It's uh, one high performance habit that you have. Something that you practice daily that has been helping you in life. Being organized. Okay. Um, I I think being organized is pretty good. Um, I, I like to one habit that I have for my jujitsu, which I've applied to like other things. You know, like designing my own home and um, other stuff but is um, paying attention to detail, which I'm sure you can appreciate that, um, which I think, I, I think that's the number one habit, paying attention to detail. Um, but I, I, I don't just talk about that every morning. I've got a little mat at my home. So a couple of black belts will come from other cities or my own city. Usually I do two private lessons every morning from my home. 
I've got a separate mat, a separate entrance, so they're not coming into my house. It goes around, the, you know. And prior to that, I, I write notes. I write it on. I use Note Shelf too uh, on, on the iPad. I write the notes up of their lesson. They've got the little book with their name on it. I write the notes up for the lesson. I plan the lesson. After I do it, when I look at that, whatever we did, you know, whatever I look at, when I look at it, the other day we were doing, um, you know, uh, butterfly guard, elevate to Kani Basami, scissor into the inside heel hook, for example. So I've taught that move. I taught it, you know, 15 years ago um, before heel hooks became a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, now they're a thing. Um, but, um, Every time I teach it, I should have another look at it. Like, like, right? Because we are different people. You know, you, you, you now, and I now, we're not the same person that we were two years ago. I mean, if we were, something would be wrong, right? So we're we're not the same. So it's worthwhile us having yet another look at the same old thing. Yet another look at the same old thing. Instead of just going onto automatic pilot, which you can do, we can do, we can do that. I don't do that. So the habit I have developed these last five or six years, which is really fun for me, is the habit of looking at something that you think you already know and do reasonably well, but look at it with fresh eyes today. And again next week. I like that. And again next week. And because because then then you know it's surprising <laughs> to me, maybe even embarrassing in a way, at how much more you see, but of course we should because we're not the same. I look at my wife this morning through a new set of eyes, through the eyes I have today, because that's not the same as even a year ago. And it's not that she's changed, I've changed, I see more. And I like to live like that, right? Because it's every day, uh, you know, it's like a discovery, a new chance to see something in the same old simple suite that we've done for 35 years, but just today, maybe we'll see some little funny thing we can do. And I think that's really cool yeah. because it keeps us joyful and interested. I like that. That's a habit. Um, what did you say is the best advice that you've ever received? Uh, best advice I've ever seen or heard would probably be save 10% of everything that you earn. That sounds easy. I struggled with it. Um, well, at the time I was told that I wasn't earning <laughs> very much money, so we were struggling. However, I reframed it, and in reframing it, I was able to do it like this. Instead of saving 10% of everything I earn, I can't do that. I seem to be struggling. How about learning to live on 90% of everything I learn? Mm. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing, but that was something different about that. I mean, oh, of course I could do that, you know, like, cause that was like a challenging thing, you know, like, can't you learn to live on 90%? Of course I can eat noodles, you know, whatever. Right. I can. And I did that. And I did that. And then, of course, after a while, you know, it starts piling up. You invest it. And then, as I said, then you start saving 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, and then I save 100%. So um, that was, I think that's really worked out for me. However, the bad news about that is it doesn't work in the short term. That's a long-term plan. Mm-hmm. But so is everything, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Everything's, a, everything's a 10-year plan, I, I, in my view. Everything's a 10-year plan. <laughs> and... Um, uh, and so in the long term, I think it really pays off. Now, 
if you have to, let's say you have a conversation, this is a, sometimes I have this question in different moments of people's lives is if you could go back, let's say could go back in a moment that you got your black belt in jujitsu and now starting a new phase of your, uh, let's say your martial arts journey, and you could go back and have a conversation with your younger self years after and just say like, hey, I just want to just came back here to tell you one thing, what that one thing would be not that you want anything different of course but if you could just go back and be like what would you have done differently something it took me much longer to learn than perhaps it should have taken me which has really helped me is don't restrict yourself to the advice of your friends <laughs> like like the people you are naturally hanging out with if that's who's advising you and that's who you're taking your cues off on how to that is a succeed or point. act. Yeah. I, I wouldn't restrict myself. I would, I would, I would, cause I learned this too, not too late, but um, I learned it quite late, but, but I, in time, in time, I learned it just in time. Um, I think if I had not learned this, my life would be very different. You need to go and pay for advice sometimes. Yes, like, sir. like, you can get free advice from your buddies, but really think about that. Like I, I, I went out there and one of the hardest things I ever did was, because one of the hardest things to get is independent advice. You know, it's easy to get advice from people who have an interest. <laughs> they have a, what do you call, agenda. Um, you know, a guy who sells property is going to advise you to invest in property. A guy who sells stocks is going to advise you to do that. Getting independent advice is very difficult. And even off your friends, because they want to give you advice that kind of bolsters what they've done or, you know, what I mean. So I think that getting independent advice is difficult. I went and paid $3,000, a lot of money, a long time ago, to an accountant, a very good accountant slash financial advisor to sit in a room with him for two days. He's never going to see with the understanding. He is never going to see me again. He's not getting any business from me. There's nothing future going to happen. I want to know everything that I should, that I need to know for life. And I'm going to pay you now and tell me what you really think. That was very, very good. Wow. I learned about how to structure you know, you have 401k mm -hmm. over there. Yeah. Our version is called superannuation. That's a company that you can make yourself and put your money into it. And it only gets taxed at 15%. But when you retire, zero tax, none, nada. <laughs> so you imagine that over 20 years, you build up money in there, you buy a property in there, you buy a second property, that property doubles in value, but you don't have to pay a single cent tax. Like... I would never have learned that. So I learned that and a lot of other things. And that was the best $3,000 I've spent in my life. Did my friends know anything about that? No. So I, I would say that's probably what I would say to my younger self. Yeah. this and Fuck it up. And pay for good advice. Man, this is a great advice for all the listeners right now, especially we have a lot of entrepreneurs, we have a lot of people in transition. You have people who are working in jobs that they're not very happy with what they add right now. They wish they'd be doing something else. And sometimes they don't know how to. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that too. Paying for someone's service. I don't know something. I will pay someone to tell me then. 
And I remember, uh, I have mentioned this in the podcast before, but in, in 2012, I got involved with public speaking and I was going to have my very first professional speaking engagement in a, in a hotel. And I had no clue what the hell I was doing. Not that like basically a month before I had no idea. I was just like, ah, I just speak and I can speak anywhere. And um, that's fine. Yeah, I can do that too. But I'm saying to put a good presentation can really impact people the way that you want to convey your message. And I just got lucky that one of my students I was doing, I think it was a belt ceremony or something. So I was doing maybe a five minute speech or whatever. And one of my students told me, Hey, um, have you heard of Toastmasters, which is a public speaking uh, club they have all over. I think probably Australia, they have to. And I said, you know, I just Googled public speaking since I'm getting involved with this. I want to know more about it. And I said, wow, I have one of my, uh, one of my clients he is in the Hall of Fame of Public Speaking. He's here in Arizona and he's been my client for 10 years. He's 72 back then. You know, he's been a professional speaker for like 40 years. And would you like to meet with him? I'm like, absolutely. And met with him. And there was, uh, if you have to think about it, you know, some of the, I think not just you, John, but like all the listeners, if you think about some of the most influential people in your life, probably, you know, some of the jujitsu, you know, it's involved you know, in that. And there's some key people in your life. And I have to say that well, my top three most influential, this person, Joe Weldon, he's one of my top three most influential people in my life. Because since 2012, uh, he has been my mentor with public speaking. And uh, I would not be where I'm at professionally without him because it was, he gave me a lot more than just public speaking. I mean, he's 78 and I still go to conferences with him and helping. So how much I learned from him. But at the same thing was, to start to do the uh, the coaching, like $3,000. And some people are like, dude, you are crazy. I'm like, no, 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 you are crazy. You know what I mean? To not be paying to get, you know, I'm trying to, to, in this case, public speaking, I'm trying to do something that this guy's been doing for 40 years, okay? And okay. he's a multimillionaire just from speaking. He, I'm pretty sure that he knows what he's doing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And... And I think for the other listeners, man, you've got to think about that. Like, what is the skill that you're trying to maybe develop more? What kind of information you're trying to get more? Go look for and invest. And that is a problem. People don't want to invest in their knowledge. And there's nothing more profitable than knowledge. And as long as you apply the knowledge. And, and I think people underestimate very much what they can do with their knowledge. So with that, that really changed my professional career. I'm not saying that, uh, that I'll never get where I got, but I'm saying like that speed up my process. And who knows? I think probably a lot of information that I learned, I would never learn. Or who knows, you know, if I never crossed with them. But I needed to have that person that paid advice to like, okay. And then so anytime I see something that I really want to learn, I have no problem in paying. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you with that. I'm with you with that. I think that's really super important. And but it's counterintuitive. <laughs> uh, what did you say is a book? One of the what are some of the books that uh, maybe one that has made a huge impact on you and why that it could recommend to people? I know that sometimes it's different moments of their lives, you know, that books come in and sometimes could it be it's my library. Man, I'm seeing his uh, <laughs> his library here. That's a lot of books. So it's tough for you to pick one book, but something that uh, 
comes out to your, like pops up in your mind, like a book that it, you recommended to entrepreneurs? The Richest Man in Babylon, mm -hmm. Simple Read. Uh, I'm, I'm saying something that probably most people would be aware of. It's a simple thing, but you know, it's one thing to read a book. It's another thing to take action on it. Absolutely. So, so if you take action on it, uh, that'll be the best book you ever read. If you don't take action on it, it'll be a cute little book, you know, but if you take action on it, it'll be the best book. you. Um, so maybe that, but I tell you a book that you probably heard of the guy almost certainly, but you might, some of our listeners may not have heard of the book because it was his first book, Robert Kiyosaki. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he wrote, if you want to be rich and happy, don't go to school. And um, I met Robert uh, probably 40 years ago when he came out to Australia. Um, he was doing a bunch of seminars on the weekends, which, was, which would cost like thousands of dollars to attend. And I was running a, a like a, I was doing like a fitness program down at a, you know, one of those week long camps where people go to eat right and relax and have a spa, you know, um, or all that. And I was running the outdoor activities, you know, take people for a run along the beach in the morning and do some yoga and things like that. Um, I was doing that to help make ends meet and he came to that camp. So while he was there for the week, he kind of took a liking to me, this young crazy kid, you know, uh, martial arts guy making him, paddle out in a canoe and go caving and do all these weird things. So he said to me, I'm running these things on the weekend. You should come. You get a lot out of it. I said, ah, not interested. My weekends, my own time. I'm teaching, training martial arts. He goes, no, no, no. You should really come. And he says, it normally costs $2,000, but for you, free. Now, it's funny because as soon as you said that, I wanted to go because he put a value on it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Because it's almost like what we just said, right? When you pay for something, you tend to use the knowledge as well, Gustavo, yeah. right? Whereas if you get the knowledge free, you go, eh. yeah. but if you pay for it, you're <laughs> going to use it <clears throat> to get the value, which is funny because the value is already in it. But um, I went along to his thing and he gave me that book. If you want to be rich and happy, don't go to school. And that was a really, that was a cool book. It was like, wow, that's really throws things on its head a little bit about, you know, people think oh, if I go to school, get my degree, that will guarantee me success in life. No. And um, so he was a, he was a real entrepreneur. Yeah. So. Cool. That was cool. He was cool. He was a great communicator. And that's a, that was a good book. If you want to be rich and happy, don't go to school by Robert Kiyosaki. Cool. I'll put the link on the uh, episodes post. So getting close to the end of the interview. So for people who are listening for the first time, hopefully get some new people from Australia. We know, I know that I have some, listeners from Australia. But if you're listening for the first time, usually after the interview, what I do, I call the final thoughts, which basically I create an audio from five to 12 minutes where I just reflect on some of my takeaways from, from, the, from the interview. And then I create an audio to inspire, impact and improve your life in some way. The interview is the easy part because John, you're the one giving me the content. So I'm just here to listen and, and ask questions, just being curious. And then comes my part of creating content. Content creation is always hard. And especially if you want to create a good one. And my intention is to always to provide good content to people when they're they listening, no matter where you listen at it, in your car and your commute to work or you go on a train. A lot of people in their 
community train uh, listen to. So uh, make sure you stick around after the the interview. So what are you currently excited about? What's going on? You just got back. You were uh, said you just came back from a trip, but like, what do you got going on? Uh, my normal week, you know, I, I, I teach a couple of privates in the morning. I do an interval training session, you know, at lunchtime. And then I turn up to class three nights a week at my academy. And uh, on the weekend, I'm doing seminars. Uh, but I've always got something happening. I, I just came back from India. I went to a, a Hegan Machado, came out for our annual competition that I run. I run just one a year. So he came out for that. We trained for a week. And then we decided, uh, him, myself, my wife, a friend of mine, one of my black belts, and his wife and kid, my kid, we went to India, way out to Rajasthan in the desert out there for 12 days. So we've always got something happening. Um, I'm going to South America, to Patagonia mm-hmm. over Christmas time uh, for 12 days in a very remote part of Patagonia. Kind of pretty excited about that. Never been to Argentina nice. and Patagonia before. So I'm trying to make up my mind. Should I just go for it and try to learn Spanish in three months? <laughs> Should I do it? You know, but if I, if I say yes, I have to commit and there'll be yellow stickers all over my house. But um, <laughs> do you think I should be <laughs> Spanish? I don't know. Because uh, that, that would be the number one language to learn in the world, in my view, Spanish. Um, so I've got that, you know, and, and just between now and Christmas, so I've got lots of training and uh, teaching, which I love. I, I, I love it. I'm still as passionate about teaching now as what I was all the time. Yeah. So yeah, I'm loving my life. I'm enjoying it day to day. Beautiful. Thank you so much for the interview, John. Really appreciate it, man. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Yes. And for all the listeners, stick around for my final thoughts. Who's thank you very much, Gustavo. Let me share with you my final thoughts from the interview with John Will. If you're listening just to the final thoughts on Instagram at Gustavo Dantas BJJ, John is Australia's first jiu-jitsu black belt. He has been an instructor to various law enforcement and military organizations throughout the world and consults and delivers instructor training for more than 100 schools worldwide. He talked about some of the lessons that he learned from jiu-jitsu, which include focusing on the process, not on a goal, and the importance of gathering small successes. He shared about knowing what you want and what you don't want. And my takeaway from the interview came when he said, let your passion monetize you, which inspired me to title the episode the same phrase. A few years ago, I was at a meeting of the National Speaker Association and I met a gentleman called Ian Percy. Ian is an author of seven books, including The Profitable Power of Purpose, Seven Strategies for Turning Your Vision into a Force for Greater Passion, Performance, and Profitability. He was inducted into both the USA and Canadian Speaker Hall of Fame. Successful Meetings Magazine declared him one of the top 21 speakers for the 21st century. I had the opportunity to connect with him a few more times in a mastermind group, and I'd like to share with you my main takeaway from his content, which is let your irritations inspire you, as I mentioned during the interview. Matter of fact, this was the title of episode number five with Origin USA co-founder Pete Roberts, who used to manufacture his products overseas. During a trip to compete at the Abu Dhabi World Pro, he saw the same Origin custom-made backpack he designed with another company's logo and he found out that the company he hired was creating the exact same product and putting other companies' labels on it. 
He got so irritated that he decided to start manufacturing their own products in the United States, and the rest is history. The Entrepreneur Magazine each year identifies businesses that are mastering the art and science of growing a business. The Entrepreneur 360 list included Origin USA as number 36 in their ranking. That specific irritation led Origin to become one of the fastest growing companies in the United States. What about you? Are you willing to let your irritations inspire you as well? Let your irritations inspire is the second strategy of the book. But before that, he challenges you with provoking questions such as, in what ways does your company want to make the world a better place through your service and products? What good are you doing exactly, which means what is the purpose of your business? Why you do what you do? Thousands of people start their businesses daily due to some unsatisfaction. Some genuinely believe they can offer a better service and products. Some could be their ego just wanted to prove a point, as John mentioned during the interview. Regardless, many people are inspired by their irritations. I mentioned during the interview that as soon as I moved to Arizona in 2000, I was very disappointed with the competition scene in the Valley. Very unorganized, disrespectful to competitors, coaches, and spectators. That irritation inspired me to turn an in-house tournament of 40 competitors into 4,000 competitors yearly after 20 years of work in 2019. By the way, I'm not trying to impress you with these numbers. It's just to convey to you that you can let your irritations inspire you and let your passion monetize you. In the book, Ian Percy wrote, quote, Why are we able to fly at the speed of sound to any point on the globe? because the Wright brothers were irritated that they couldn't. Why do we have electricity? Because Thomas Edison got fed up working in the dark. Why is Walmart number one on Fortune's list? Because Sam Walton was irritated that common people couldn't get a good price on needed products, unquote. These final thoughts are short because the message is straightforward. Let your irritations inspire you and let your passion monetize you. If you have a company and you feel that you'd like to revamp or restructure, this is what he said. Quote, I don't know your company or its history, but I guarantee that it was started by someone who was irritated about something. Go back to that original irritation. Why was your company started in the first place? Listen again to the voice that gave birth to your organization. What part of that original intent is still relevant today? Once you've done that, You've got to deal with today's irritations. Listen to the voice. Move up closer to the irritations and restlessness so you can hear better. Every angry customer is trying to help you. Every poor review is a message from God. Every percentage of loss and market share is a call from your higher purpose, unquote. To wrap up, Ian suggests an exercise. Complete the sentence. Because... You identify the primary irritation you want to conquer. We are committed to identify the solution you bring to this irritation. Again, because filling the gap with whatever primary irritation you want to conquer, we are committed to filling the gap with whatever solution you bring to this irritation. Let your irritations inspire you and let your passion monetize you. Oh, We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. 
Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.